Welcome. Good morning and welcome to the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Lewis Alzan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, Free Tools will try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you give us a call? It's 291 6901. And should you happen to be out of the local area code, you can always put a 225 in front of that number and reach us from anywhere inside the continental United States this morning. And we sure wish you would. We love hearing folks all over the United States and, of course, in greater Baton Rouge metropolitan area as well. There you go. <laughs> That's our primary market area. <laughs> It's Gil Scott, 291-6901. We've got all our lines wide open. Get you right straight up to the top of the list. Get you an answer to whatever might be ailing you. That's it. And should you happen not to want to be on the air with us this morning or maybe think of something after they boot us out of here at 11 <laughs> o'clock, That's right. you can always go to our website and get your questions answered that way. The address is agcoauto.com. That is A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. There is a contact bar on each and every page. Just click the button, fill out the form, and send it in. That's right. Couldn't be any easier than that. We'll get an answer back to you within 24 hours, and sometimes a whole lot faster. It just depends on where I happen to be at the time. To and arrive. what day it is. <laughs> and what day of the week it is. <laughs> I got to say, I'm a little more lax a days ago on weekends than I am during the week. Uh-huh. I'm a little more fastidious during the week. <laughs> <laughs> I can blurge some of those big words out there. There you go. <laughs> Last week, we were getting into some discussion about frame and chassis. Uh-huh. I want to say repair, uh, maladies, corrections, those sorts of things, and I'd like to expound on that this weekend. Okay. But before that, we had had Mr. Bruce had called a few times about E-designation on the AC Delco filters. Correct. For instance, a PF48 is the standard designation or was the standard designation on a filter. Now they've got the PF48E. And naturally, when something changes, people are a little reluctant, reluctant, alarmed, whatever. And I was able to contact a representative at General Motors and got a statement, an official statement from the horse's mouth, as it was. There you go. And when it first came out, the story was that it was a different packaging and so on as that. But they've come out. Right. Give us more information now. Right. The old 48 which was the the filter that came on the vehicle. And I think they still have a back stock of those. They do. They still come on the new vehicles when they come in from the factory. Mm -hmm. They come in with a 48. But the replacement is a 48E, unless it's been bought in a Durapack, which is like a case of filters. Right. Then it's got a different designation, which is an F. Right, 48F. But it's still the same filter. It's just a way for them to track how it was packaged. Mm -hmm. But the, the filter itself has been improved some. They've gone with a different element, mm-hmm. a higher integrity element. <laughs> Say that three times fast. There huh? you go. Increased by strength by 25%. Mm-hmm. They made that change to it. As far as the media itself, mm-hmm. it's still the same media, but it's no longer glued into the filter where they were having a, not an issue, but it was slowing the oil rate down. Mm-hmm. So they took the adhesive out and the filter is now the correct size and it doesn't rely on adhesive to keep it in the can anymore. Mm-hmm. So they can get more oil right when the can through it together. It holds it all together now. Right, the filtration, which is the media's, the efficiency and the capacity hadn't been changed. Unchanged. In it. Uh-huh. Right, the can is still the same. The the cap you used to take it off before still works on the new filter, and the the relief valve built a different relief valve for it, which is improved and more stable. They say, mm-hmm. and like we was mentioning about the adhesive slowing the oil down, the the durability going through it now is is a lot better because the adhesive doesn't get in the way anymore and ac delco claims that this will be the oem filter or gm has adopted this filter that is the one that will come oem on future models it right now i think they probably they still have got a, a back stock of the older filters, so they can use those up but correct anyway i hope that 
answers and alleviates most people's fears. We have cut one or two of these open, and I can't see a difference in them, so I don't think it's any worse than the original filter was. Mm -hmm. And they claim it is better. I don't have a way to verify that. I do is go by what they're saying, but I don't see what they have any reason to lie to anybody about it. You'd have to maybe send one out to an industrial testing lab to know further, but... You'd have to have one of the original ones and one of the new ones for them to compare them. Right, and even then, I have seen no problems with them. So I would be comfortable. And the whole argument, I guess, behind the original equipment filter, I've had people say, well, you seem like you're down on all aftermarket filters. Well, no, not necessarily. The reason I recommend an original equipment filter, that is an AC Delco for Chevrolet or Motocraft for Ford or Mopar for Chrysler or Toyota, Honda, whatever, is because it will always be an adequate filter. When you go with the aftermarket filters, and I, I don't want to get into a discussion of names, but a lot of them have multiple lines. There's Correct. one very popular filter out there that in their premium line, it's a good filter. Mm-hmm. But they also have what they call a silver line, right? which is which not is so not... good a filter. So if you say, okay, yeah, this filter's okay, and people go to the parts store and have them a silver filter, they don't know, and they're getting a substandard filter, in my opinion, So when you use the original equipment filter, you're always going to have a filter that is at least adequate and in most cases superior to most of the aftermarket. And not only that, but it's available. It's widely available. It's widely available. You can go to any dealership and pick one up. And it's consistent. Correct. It will consistently be a good filter. Now, on the Toyota filters that we have examined, they look like a much superior filter than anything else I've seen. Toyota does a very, very good job on their filters. Sure. Some of the other manufacturers, eh, so-so. Chrysler, I don't see where it's a really great filter. It's not a bad filter. It seems about like an average-type mm-hmm. filter. Right. Uh, but on the Toyota products, I really like a number of things they do. For one thing, the O-ring that seals the filter is crimped into the housing. It's mm-hmm. not just stuck on like some. Right. We're talking about the can filter. The can filter. Right. And when you remove a filter and that ring sticks to the engine, which occasionally that happens. It pulls loose from the can. If you don't notice that, screw a new filter on top of it. you got double gasket, and they will only blow out on you. Well, only one of them is supported. That's right. So and the other one is just sitting there with the crush there. of the can holding it on. And, and when the pressure builds. That 80 pounds of oil pressure hits right. it, it can blow it out of position and create a huge oil leak, pump all the oil out the motor. So that's one thing I really like about Toyota is they crimp that O-ring in. And you know a lot of those Toyota filters come pre-lubricated. They come with a plastic seal on the top. Right. And the, the O-ring is pre-lubricated. Well, another thing I was fixing to say, that plastic seal seals that filter. It is factory sealed. So you know there's no debris or anything that's gotten inside the filter. Because if someone opens the box or whatever, or for whatever reason, something mm-hmm. falls into that filter opening where the threads are, Right. that is the output side of the filter. Any debris in that area is going straight to the engine bearings. It's right. not going to pass through the element. And that's the reason we always recommend against. I know at one time there was this urban legend about, well, you fill the oil filter up with oil before you put it on the car, mm-hmm. and that keeps it from running low on oil while the engine's cranking up and all that. Sounds good, except that oil that comes out of the bottle is not filtered. It's relatively clean, but it is not filtered oil. Mm-hmm. And any debris that is in that bottle is going, is going that straight filter. to the engine bearing. So that's really not a good practice. Not only that, but anything that you touch or knock or hit or it's going yeah. into that, it's going straight to your engine bearings. You're much better off just to screw the filter on. That oil pump will fill that filter in virtually a microsecond. I mean, when you hit 80 pounds of oil pressure, just cranking the engine, it's going to fill that filter sure. way before there's a problem. So we don't recommend the practice of pouring oil into the filter. Just 
too many drawbacks and really not enough, if any, benefit. Too many things go wrong. That's right. So that's one of those urban legends that gets started out there. (laughs) And I had posted that on the website, and someone on a forum saw it, and, of course, they were went all all, all off on the deep end. Oh, no, you you can't say And a guy who was from one of the oil companies, after about 30 people at Dogus, (laughs) came on and said, no, he's right. (laughs) When it all comes out of the refinery, it's clean, but it's not filtered. So you do, and and things can settle out in the oil. Things can get into oil and the packaging and all that. So, no, you don't want to dump oil into the output side of your filter. It's way better off just to crank the engine over and let it fill. Let it fill from the pump. Let's go to our phone lines. We've got Scott online. Good morning, Scott. I was wondering if you had a tip or uh, maybe the correct procedure for using your air conditioner when the vehicle is hot. I make several stops a day where I'm inside a, a business for 45 minutes to an hour. Of yes, course, sir. when you come out, it's hotter than blazing. Absolutely. And your first instinct is to just crank it up and hit that the high max. Yes, sir. I'm wondering if there is a procedure that to get things to cool down quicker to get the AC to... To, to do what it's supposed to do quicker. Yes, yeah, Scott, the answer to that would be, depends on what year model car you have. If you have any kind of a even relatively modern car, you really don't have to worry about it because it's programmed. The body control module has an ambient temperature sensor. It knows what temperature is. It's going to automatically set everything for maximum cooling. It's going to do everything it needs to do. It may open the fresh air door if the outside temperature is way less than the inside. Draw some cooler outside air in. It's going to do all that for you. If you had an older car, and I'm talking probably back in the mid-80s, it didn't hurt to maybe open the windows and all that sort of thing, let some of the hot air get out. It really just depends. If the air inside the car is hotter than the air outside, then you're going to benefit somewhat by letting some cooler air in. If the air outside is hotter than the inside air, well, then you want to block the outside air off. But to answer the question, any modern vehicle is going to pretty much handle that for you. Same thing when you crank up. It's going to automatically disable the compressor while the engine's cranking. You used to hear, we'll turn the air conditioner off when you're starting the car and all that. You really don't have to do any of that. It's going to do it all for you. When you push the button for AC on a modern car, it's not a switch at all. It's a sensor, and it sends a request to the body module for AC. The body module is going to evaluate the circumstances, and then it's going to enable the compressor when it wants. Okay, good deal. I appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks for calling, man. Bye-bye. All right. We had that exact thing come in this week. A gentleman had a Chrysler product, and when you went to put the air conditioner on recirculate, Uh you would push the button, and light would blink at you three times, and then it would go off, and it wouldn't go to fresh air. And he was concerned about it. He brought it in, and... We look, and of course, the first thing you think of is a bad actuator uh-huh. or a bad stuck door or stuck something door like. and all that. Well, we tested the actuator. It was working. We tested the door. It was working. We tested the command from the ATEC, the automatic temperature control computer. It mm-hmm. was all there. I could actually command it and all that. But something was overriding it. Right. And what it was, the body control module has a sensor called a humidity sensor. Okay. The humidity sensor had gone bad. It thought it had 135% relative humidity, so it was not going to allow that door to open. <laughs> and it just goes to show you how drawn out and right. complicated some of that stuff is. Change the humidity sensor. Everything started working. Fresh air works just fine. How about that? We're going to take a quick little break. Paul, hold on. You'll be straight up after this break. Travel my way. Take the highway. That's the best. I get your kicks. Hey, Lewis Alzan, Magco Automotive. This year we celebrate 40 years in business, and you won't believe the people calling in to congratulate us. 
Hey, Lewis, it's Jay. You, you know, I'm into cars myself, and 40 years of business is amazing, just amazing. You know, if I still had my show, I'd have you in the interview chair just like that. Mr. Altazan, congratulations from your old pal Jack. 40 years is quite an accomplishment, and that's the truth. I should know, because I can handle the truth. Uh, uh, Lewis, it's, it's me, Oz. 40 years. I, I can't even... Bloody amazing. Sharon! Where's my cell phone? Oh, that's right. I, I, I'm on it. Now I've got to find my glasses. Well, it's been really nice getting all these calls. I guess in this day and age, people really appreciate an automotive repair shop that does good work and will never steal your own. Agco. After 40 years, it's still the place to go. Hey, welcome back. Just join us at the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldezan, with Mr. Brian Kerr. We certainly appreciate you spending your Saturday morning with us. We're going right back to our phone lines with Paul. Good morning, Paul. Uh, good morning. Yes, sir. Good morning. While the engine is running and the car sitting still, uh -huh. if I press on the brake pedal, I get a hissing noise. Is that because maybe the bladder in the brake booster is broken, you know, leaking air back? Probably not the bladder, more likely the valve that operates it. The way that works, Paul, there's a big bladder in the center and two chambers. What happens when it's operating neutral and there's no brake application is you have vacuum on either side of that bladder. So there's no effect. It just sits there. When you touch the pedal, what it does is it vents the back reservoir, the one closest to the pedal, to atmosphere. The atmospheric pressure rolls in. The vacuum sucks forward. The pressure pushes forward, which gives you a boost. The second you release, it seals that off, and so it, the vacuum sucks the atmospheric pressure out, so it returns to neutral. More likely it's something in that valve assembly, which is more or less a moot point because you've right. got to replace the booster regardless. There's no repair for it. What kind of car is it, Paul? That's that 93 Carvette. Okay. Yeah, the more likely it's going to you got to replace the brake booster regardless, so it's sort of a moot point. Does it still brake okay? Brake's sort of where you really have to push well, yeah, on. Yeah, right. so you're right. losing some. Yeah, more, losing it's like, probably leaking between that seal where the stem comes out and hooks to the brake pedal. The reason I say that, if the booster itself were ruptured, you'd get a lot of other really weird things going on. Does the engine run maybe a little bit of rough, like a vacuum uh, leak? Slightly, it tends to want to creep up in the acceleration. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, you probably got a vacuum leak. I mean, the way to test for that, you can just block that vacuum line off temporarily and see if the engine starts to run better and the idle comes back down. If it does, that kind of confirms it. But, yeah, you might want to see if you can locate a, a brake booster for it. The new ones have probably been discontinued on that car, but you can get remanufactured ones that are pretty decent. I know Wagner and Bendix and some of those guys are rebuilding them. I think A1 Cardone also does a pretty decent job on that. We've used some of the uh, aftermarket rebuilt stuff, and they seem to be pretty good. We, we had not had much trouble out of it. Okay, so when you really have to put your foot on the brake kind of really, really, really hard, do you call that a soft pedal or a hard pedal? <laughs> not a, either one. It's just a lack of boost. You know, you still oh, a lack got, of boost. Yeah, okay. lack of boost. You still, have, you still have the braking. It's just not really easy it's to not being assisted anymore. Mm -hmm. Right, like it having, takes, takes a lot, lot more effort. Right. right, it's worse than having manual brakes without a booster. Yeah, because you had to push the booster. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so that's an internal leak? Yeah, probably leaking around the shaft seal where it comes out the back, which is part of the valve assembly. And like I said, it's not a repairable item. You're going to have to right. replace the booster. Right, and most of those reman boosters do not come painted. Right. So, you know, if you wanted it painted or something, you'd have to do that before you put it in the car. Right, because once it's in the car, you can't really, right, you can't really get to it. it. Yeah. 
Is that something, since I'm pretty handy, is that something, I think I did that once before, replaced mm -hmm. it. Well, yeah. if you can take the driver's seat out, mm -hmm. that would make it a whole lot easier. Because yeah. then you could lay across the, the seat where the seat goes. Yeah. Lay Nothing down on in a Corvette is easy, no. Paul. Not no. one thing on a Corvette's easy. Right. <laughs> yeah, so no words. That, that's uh, what Corvette means in some right. languages, difficult. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that... So it's definitely something internally in, in the booster yeah, itself. Yeah, if you've got lack of boost and a hissing noise inside the car and a rough idle, that pretty much gives it away. Now, if you have the wherewithal to move the master cylinder off of the booster without disconnecting the lines, right. you're going to be worlds ahead changing that booster. Right. Now, some of them you have to disconnect it because there's no room to move it out of the way. Right. You don't want to break the lines if you don't have oh, to. Oh, no. I, I think before I was able to move the master cylinder out of the way. Right. You, you can go. just yeah. even bend the line slightly you don't want to mm. get rough with them but if you can just push that mass don't break into the system if you don't have to and then all you have to do is disconnect from the brake pedal and there's four screws on the inside of the car you have to take off and it pretty mm. much slips out slips in plug the vacuum line on well, so it's not a think, hard job no do you think i have to readjust the brake rod should not have to should not be any adjustment on it i don't think there is as, one on that one. as far as from the booster to the brake pedal now right. on the other side Depending on the application, I'm not sure if the Corvette has one, but some of those shafts are adjustable. So on you the have, outside, so you have to measure the depth of the master cylinder, and then make the rod the same depth minus so many thousandths of an inch. Yeah, go yeah. to my website and just type in the word booster in the search bar, and it's going to bring up an article that shows you the tool to do that with. It'll explain everything you need to know about it. Okay, well, thanks a lot. All right, Paul. You're welcome. Thanks, man. Bye bye. All right, 291-6901 is the number. If you want to be part of the Automotive Hour, we'd love to have you. We're going to talk a little bit about chassis uh -huh. and frame and suspension and all that sort of thing. And I guess chassis work is one of those things that's sort of a black art. Most people, even most shops, do not deal with that. Body shops tend to do more of it than mechanical shops unless it gets into a mechanical side of the issue. For instance... One of the reasons why we formed Agco in the first place was because a lot of cars were being repaired and they were getting the frame back and made all the body panels fit just fine, but they were having suspension problems. Correct. And it kind of fell in the crack between a body shop and a mechanical shop. No one really addressed that, and that's where we came in as a specialty and started addressing that particular problem. Over the years, that's gotten better because the cars are built with high strength, low alloy steel, so they sustain mm -hmm. less damage. They're a little more straightforward. And I think the body shops have gotten a lot more sophisticated as well. Most right. of them have wheel alignment equipment now, whereas and they didn't the 25 ones, years ago. Right, the ones that don't usually send their work out to somebody who does. Send it out to someone who does. But it can still happen that a car can sustain chassis damage and go undetected. And most people, the first thing they think of when you hear frame or chassis damage is a wreck. Uh-huh. But that's not always the case. No, it's not, especially around Baton Rouge. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, really, anywhere in the country. From here, and yeah. the roads here are, man, they're, they're terrible. Yeah. The, the heat just eats them up, and before long, the, the heat gets to them, and the, the roads can expand, and they have nowhere to expand, so they buckle. Right. And then when the expansion's over, they cool off, they contract, mm -hmm. and then you've got a, a rupture right there in the road, the traffic going across, it breaks the holes out, and before you know you've got a big old pothole there. That's right. So, you know, believe, city it does, not, believe it or not, that happens everywhere. It, well, I've, I've been all over this country, and there's not a spot in it that's not that way. <laughs> I can tell you, the city does a pretty good job of getting them repaired around. They I've, do. They I've do. noticed. They stay on that. Even the, the asphalt or concrete, they mm -hmm. both do the same thing. Mm -hmm. But if you hit something like that, or you hit a curb, let's say you 
get distracted and your car hits a curb going down the road, pothole, big uh, embankment of some sort, mm-hmm. you run over the median in a parking lot, all sorts of things can cause frame or chassis damage. Sure. And a lot of times you won't have any body damage at all. In other words, the car will not look like it's got any damage. However, where you'll notice is things like the car maybe pulls to the right or pulls to the left when you drive. Mm-hmm. You get the alignment set, but it still pulls to the right or to the left. Right. And you go back to the alignment shop, and they say, well, it's all lined up. We don't know what's wrong. All right, it's wrong. all in the green. All in green. <laughs> so that's one of the symptoms. Another is a part that continues to fail. For instance, let's say you've got a outer CV joint goes bad, uh-huh. starts to click or fails. You replace it, and it lasts for maybe six months to a year, and it goes bad again. Right. Well, first thing, well, it must have been a bad joint. So you change it again. Change it again. Well, six months or a year later, it goes bad again. Well, this is a sign of a misalignment in the frame or chassis. Mm-hmm. Other things may be something like what we call torque steer. Right. That's where when you accelerate the car, it pulls. When you let off the gas, it, it quits pulling. Up. And they call it torque steer because the engine torque makes the car pull right or pull left on acceleration. Other things are something like uh, bump steer, which most people are not familiar with at all. Right, and that's where the steering linkage is not level anymore. So what happens when it gets out of level, one wheel travels further than the other one, where the one traveling the farthest makes the vehicle bump over right? because the toe is changing on it more than the other. Toe in and toe out as the vehicle goes from jounce to rebound. Uh Uh-huh. It moves up and down on its suspension. You're going to see the wheels toe in and toe out. It's a very, very strange sensation. We're going to talk about that and a whole lot more as soon as we get back from this break. Hi, it's Louis Altazan from Agco Automotive. It's our 40-year anniversary, and the phone's been ringing off the hook with congrats from far and wide. Good day, and congratulations from Buckingham Palace. Next time you're in London, Lewis, you must stop by for tea. I'm restoring an old Aston Martin and have some questions about the timing adjustments. Hope to see you soon. Lewis, it's your nanny. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I wanted to call and tell you how proud I am of you. Forty years is nothing to sneeze at. (laughs) Ho, 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 Lewis. Fixing cars right the first time for over 40 years. You've been a very good boy. I think I have something special for you this year. Keep up the good work. See calls from far and wide. I guess 40 years of high-quality work really means a lot to people and keeps me on the nice list. Now I can't wait for Christmas. Agco. After 40 years, it's still the place to go. The Riveter, I don't mind it because the man with the whiskers has a lot behind it, but I can't keep Hey, welcome back. If you join us the Automotive Hour, I'm your host, Lewis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, two tools will try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go give us a call? It's 291-6901. We'd love to hear from you. And right now is a good time. we still got about a half hour to get your questions answered for you. We'll have plenty of time. We'll get you a good thorough answer. That way we don't have to give you the bums rush. <laughs> like we do when you get at the very end of the show. There you go. We were talking about frame and chassis and suspension type damage that occurs. But we'll talk about any topic sure. you might have. You got an sure. oil change question or alternator question or door locks don't work or whatever you got. You give us a call. 291-6901. Be glad to try to help you out and point you in the right direction. When we talk about frame and suspension, most people naturally assume a wreck. Uh Like I said, that is not the case at all, as we talked about a little bit in the earlier session. But the symptoms of frame damage, 
could be something as subtle as a part that continues to fail. It could be a very erratic driving habit that we can't really put our finger on. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, we're talking about bump steer. That's one of those things that most people are not familiar with. Most often, people will come in, they can't describe what the car is doing. Right. Because you're going down, let's say, the interstate, particularly in a curve, like in Baton Rouge around Governor's Man, you hit a little dip in the road and the car just kind of jumps into the other lane. Even though you're holding the wheel nice and steady, it's very, very unconcerting feeling. Sure. And bump steer can occur on the front suspension or, or the rear suspension that's right. on an independent rear suspension car. And when it's on the rear, it's particularly hard to detect what's going on. It's just the car kind of has a mind of its own, basically. Right. It doesn't want to actually track behind the, the front. It kind of like it immediately oversteers and then immediately understeers. Right. At the same time. Very, very disconcerting feeling when you have it. Somebody that knows what they're looking for and has ridden in that type of vehicle and knows what it's supposed to ride like mm -hmm. can usually get right to that type of complaint. Mm -hmm. I know at AGCO we have a, a lot of experience in straightening that stuff out. That basically, that's what I do mm -hmm. at AGCO is framework and alignment. And you can take that vehicle, put it on the alignment rack, put the heads on it, and get the readings on it, and the readings are live. Right. Set your so, toe to zero. Or so you don't even have to set the toe. All you got to do is jounce the suspension. Right. If you can pull it down, mm -hmm. toe on each individual wheel should toe in. That's right. And then when sitting at level, normal height, unjounced, I right. should say, it's going to have a reading. And then when you lift it up, the, the toe on each individual wheel should toe out the same amount. Mm -hmm. What is happening is when you pull down, one wheel on the back is towing out, and the other wheel is towing in which makes the vehicle want to track to the way the toe is. Well, right. It's is. sort of like a forklift. You turn those back wheels. And it's it, going to go. It's going to go. Right. The way to fix that, you, you have to figure out where the tie rod and the points are to the frame. Pivot those, points. Those have to be the same height. And it, it's very easy to, to fix because we have some centerline gauges, which I use on a frame machine. Right. You hang these gauges underneath the vehicle at different points on the frame, and you can pull the frame back around till all the gauges well, line up. Allows you, can, you to see it. Allows right. you to visualize it. You can take those same gauges and hang them on the, the frame in the center of the vehicle and then hang them on the suspension points, mm -hmm. the pivot points, and you can see those pivot points are not level anymore. Right. So then you can go in and figure out why are these points not level. Is something bent? Is something broke? Skewed. Right. Then you can take it over to the frame machine, and depending on what is wrong with it you can straighten it out right and sometimes and, and it's a matter of replacing level. parts most times it's a matter of straightening something but the pivot point of the two tie rods has to match the pivot point of the control arms as far as angle there's the arm angle of the two lower control arms has to equal the arm angle of the of tie, the tie rods. rods because if they don't when they go up and down they travel in different planes and the wheels will tow in and out right which is going to give you a very very bizarre yeah sensation yes it does <laughs> we're going back to our phone lines with jeff good morning jeff Hey, good morning, guys. Good yes, morning. Sir. I bought my son a 2004 Jeep Grand Cherokee. Okay. Had it all mechanically checked out. Everything was fine. But the one thing we did not check was the brake lights. Okay. Because it had a brand new inspection sticker on it, so I assumed everything was working. Mm -hmm. Comes to find out I have no tail lights. Okay. The left assembly apart, it needed a bulb, so it's working fine. But the right one is just dead. I mean, that is the most jacked-up-looking brake light system. It is a very, <laughs> yeah... I am amazed, Jeff, at the complexity they go through to make brake lights work these days. I mean, something so simple, they make it so incredibly complex. 
on that particular model, the most likely thing, there's two little sockets that go in, you know, kind of hook into the back of the housing, and the bulb hooks into those. Correct. I believe one of them has a crossover in it that crosses over to the other. And so what can happen if that socket goes bad, it may power that light bulb, but it may not send the power to the other light bulb. You might want to check those sockets, and you have to do that by back probing the socket. And if you're not familiar with the term back probing, go to my website and just type it in, back probe, and it'll show you how to do that sort of thing. But those little sockets are relatively inexpensive. I want to say they're about $10 a piece from Jeep Chrysler, and that fixes an awful lot of them. I can't guarantee you that's the problem, but that fixes an awful lot of those. If you've got no power to the socket, another thing that throws a lot of people for a loop is a turn signal switch. And the reason the turn signal switch can disable brake lights is because when you hit the switch to, to turn and the signal has to blink, that's the brake light that's blinking. So the switch cuts off the power to the brake light and then makes it flash. If that switch malfunctions, it can kill one side or the other side or both, depending. So it's going to start out with a voltmeter back probing the sockets. Most likely you're going to find one of those sockets is bad. If you don't, then you have to just kind of trace back up. But if one is working and the other one isn't, and say the third brake light's working, well, then you know the switch is working, so you can forget about all that. You know the fuse is working, you know the wires are good up to that point. Okay. All righty? All right. Thank you, sir. Uh-huh. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. 291-6901 is the number. If you want to be part of the automotive hour, whether it's brake lights or BCMs, you give us a call. We're going to try to help you out and point you in the right direction. One of the things that we were talking about, the framework and the different symptoms and things that we come across one is a part that continues to fail and even though this is not technically framework it does fall into the same realm of things and that is a wheel bearing that continues to go out i was just thinking that same thing mm -hmm. wheel bearings are a real particular especially on today's modern vehicles it's actually a hub bearing now instead of the old two-piece bearing with the seal that had that be packed every so many thousand right. miles. all sealed. Right. This is an all totally sealed unit, and it's pressed into the knuckle, or it's either pressed into a housing that is bolted to the knuckle. Correct. So you have a wheel bearing that keeps going bad. More than likely, the bore, the knuckle is bent, and because the bore is so big, it tends to bend through the bore, right. which makes the bore out of round. Mm -hmm. Well, you can press a new bearing into it, and it conforms to the, right. the out of round of the hub and makes it run out of round well, it'll last for a little while and we're only talking let's say this thing is bent five thousandths of an inch which is not very much you press this big bearing in there well that may actually push it back three thousandths of an inch but it also crushes the bearing down two thousandths of an inch so now if we looked at the 12 to six o'clock dimension maybe two thousandths of an inch less than the three Three to nine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Look at my watch. <laughs> You're right. The digital age. There you go. It is not the same. So every time it rotates, it's getting bound up in two positions, and it's too loose in the other two positions, right. which is going to drastically shorten the life of that bearing. And if you just press a new bearing in, it's going to temporarily fix it or sure. seem to fix it. But it's going to continue to go on. And it takes some relatively sophisticated equipment to detect that on the car, you could clearly take it apart and take a micrometer and measure the bore is right. one way. But to check it on the car, we've got jigs and fixtures that can tell you without taking the car apart if that knuckle is bent. Right. I've seen a vehicle come in with a bent knuckle and somebody modified the strut to bring the camber back up. That's right. Because when, so the, the, knuckle, alignment read, okay. when the knuckle bends, it takes the camber with it. Mm -hmm. So somebody modified the top side to bring the camber back to stand the wheel back up. 
Not on, necessarily. Or on vehicles that are adjustable, they may have just cranked, cranked the adjustment, adjustment all the way out. Roll the cam under on the bottom or crank the top out, whatever, put a bunch of shims. There are all sorts of ways to possibly get the wheel alignment back right. However, you, you still, still got a bent knuckle. Right. And when that bearing gets pressed into that distorted bore, it is going to shorten the life of the bearing considerably. Right. So that's one of the other things. Now, other things we see are like ball joints or tie rods, mm-hmm. where this part is in a bind because something is bent. Lower control arm bushings, upper control arm bushings, same story. Sure. Let's say the lower arm is back because the cross member is twisted or bent, and maybe someone's tried to adjust it forward, but now they've got the two bushings in a bind. That bushing is wear out prematurely. So the symptom you're going to get is bushing keeps failing. Mm-hmm. And most individuals and even a lot of shops love to treat symptoms. Sure. They see the bushing bad. Well, first well, thing is popping your bushing, bushing in. Yeah. Right. And when it goes bad again, well, must have had a bad bushing, so they put another one in. Well, about the third time through the cycle, well, something else must be going on here. Now they have to start thinking. Mm-hmm. But that is the sorts of things that framework can contribute to it's right. not always just this is bent or the hood doesn't fit or the door doesn't fit although that may also be part of it mm-hmm. body panels that do not fit correctly a hood that won't open when you pull the release that you have to yank on a door that is harder to close than normal squeaks rattles all these sorts of things can also be framework and another place where you can get some really i guess weird type frame problems is like a popping bumping kind of sensation on bumps and that's because a body mount has worn out uh-huh. and in a second we're going to go into why those body mounts wear out hey we'll take one more quick little break and be right back with more on the automotive hour hi folks lewis aldazan here from agco automotive this year we celebrate 40 years in business and man i can't believe all the calls we receive from national dignitaries Lewis, it's the governor. I'm taking time out from my new movie to congratulate you on 40 years. I got to run, but I'll be back. Lewis, hey, I'm playing golf with an old friend, and we wanted to call and say that 40 years is quite a run. Lewis, that is absolutely splendorific. <laughs> Hey, Lewis, James here, 40 years, wow. You know, there's nothing more I like than a good homegrown Louisiana success story, except, well, maybe politicking and my tigers. You up now, you hear? Well, I'm flattered. I guess even in the world of politics, honesty and integrity are still something to value. Okay, well, maybe outside the world of politics. Agco, after 40 years, it's still the place to go. Welcome back to the final segment of the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, president of Agco Automotive. Got our co-pilot, Mr. Brian Terry, right here in the co-pilot seat. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. You go ahead and give us calls, 291-6901. Today we're talking about frame, chassis, and suspension repairs, but we can talk about any subject you might have an interest in. We sure can. You just give us a call, give us a shot, and we'll try to come through for you. (laughs) (laughs) We were talking about the different things, the wheel bearings, the tie rods, Uh parts that go bad. Now, technically, a vehicle could be in, I'm not going to say perfect alignment because it's not in perfect alignment, but it can read correctly on an alignment machine and still have a problem. Sure. Particularly if the technician taking the readings is not reading all of the things that are available to him. Right. 
For instance, sometimes they may get caster, camera, and tow because those are the things they can readily adjust. Those are the three readily available readings for you. You actually have to go looking for the other two. Right. Well, the SAI, which is steering, axis, inclination, and included angle, those are diagnostic angles. Correct. They point to a problem. And I guess some shops may say, well, we can't do anything about it, so, so we no don't look at check it. it. Yeah, right. really not anything we can do. But Which is not a very good practice. Right. Now, on every alignment, I like to look at those readings, whether all the on the machine, let me back up, the machine is set up to where if the reading is in specification, it lights up green. If mm-hmm. it's not in specification, it lights up red. Right. And I really don't like that. Yeah. It's just kind of a cheap, easy way to non-technical technician to set an alignment. Well, he says, well, it's all in the green. Right. Well, that, well, that really doesn't, doesn't mean, mean anything. anything. The relationship one side to the other has to be correct. It has to be a certain position in the specification and so on as that. But we could have the caster, camber, and tow perfectly set, and the vehicle could still pull. It could still drive erratically. Right. For instance, we have what we call wheel setback. And... If a vehicle strikes a curb and it knocks the entire wheel assembly, upper and lower arm, back, back. let's say it goes back a half an inch, okay. which is not a huge amount when you consider a 130, 140-inch wheelbase. Well, the entire assembly moves, so the relationship of the top of the wheel to the bottom, the relationship of the in and out on the camber, and all that will read correctly. You can adjust toe in to where that will read correctly. Right. But you have different wheelbases right and left. Right. So the car is not going to drive properly. And that takes a little more sophisticated approach. You can't just say, okay, well, everything's right, so you must be crazy. <laughs> no, no, no. If the wheel setback is not correct, the vehicle is not going to drive properly. Right. It's going to pull toward the shorter side of the setback. That's right. Another thing is where you have offsetting damage. For instance, if the included angle is off because, let's say, one of the rotating components has bent, be it a ball joint or a knuckle or whatever, and someone adjusts the SAI out the same amount, right? we have restored the camber. However, the relationship side to side, the included angle is still off and the SAI is still off. And those also pull. So the car may, even though everything is set right, it may still pull right, pull left, and do all sorts of other weird things and that's the situation where, well, I've had my car aligned two or three times and, and it's still, still doing the same thing. Right. You're not in the right place. Yeah. You're not in a shop that is capable of doing that type of diagnostics. We're going back to our phone lines. Ray, good morning, Ray. Yes, I have a 96 uh, O's uh, 88. Okay. And I'm having a problem with my inspection light. We're getting inspection stickers. Okay. The light keeps popping on. I look like when I got my inspection, time I got my inspection sticker on. My light came back on, so, mm-hmm. you know, I changed out just about everything. Yeah, well, you can't change your way out of that, Ray. You will go broke before you run out of gases, okay? <laughs> You'll run out of money way before you run right. out of gases because even on a 96 model car, there's probably fifteen to 1,800 different things that can make that light come on. Right, right. So you can't just say, well, I'm going to change this, I'm going to change this, I'm going to change that. The light is on for a reason. The reason starts with the code that is stored in memory. So... That is not the diagnosis, okay? That is just where you start. For instance, you may have an EGR code just to take one out. Of, well, the first thing people want to do is go change the EGR valve. No, 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 no. It just says the system has an issue. It could be a carbon plug stuck in the intake manifold that's blocking the flow. It could be a vacuum line to the solenoid that opens it. It could be, be a, a bad engine computer. It could be one of the sensors that feeds it. It could broke be the wire. sensor, a broke wire. Yeah. 
could be the map sensors not reading the change from the EGR. So what you're going to have to have is someone who has enough sense to go in, read the code, do the testing from there, and then you can get that problem solved. If you just go in and start throwing parts at it, I will absolutely guarantee you'll run out of money before you run out of things you can change. And you may be creating more problems. Well, you may be creating other problems because some of the parts you buy today are probably worse than the ones you're taking off. So you may have taken a good part off, put a bad part on, and just created a secondary problem. What you're going to need to do is get that to a shop that has a diagnostic culture. That is a shop that does testing. Now, how do you know when you get there? When you go in the door, number one, there's going to be a charge for checking it because they're not going to do anything for free. If they know what they're doing, then would you go to a doctor that looks at you and examines you for free? I wouldn't. You're going to have to go somewhere where they're going to charge you to do a diagnosis. That way you know you're getting. The second thing is when they check the car and they tell you what's wrong, ask them, do you guarantee this will fix the problem? And you'll know right there if you're in the right place or not. Well, you know, we've got to do this and do this. Oh, no, no, you're in the wrong place. If the guy says, yes, absolutely, it's going to fix the problem. The reason we know is because we've checked this, we've checked this, we've checked that, we've done this, we've done that. And that type of problem, it's one of those things, Ray, it's kind of like in every town, there's one guy who can cook a pepperoni pizza. There's one guy who can press your shirt properly. There's one guy who can fix a VCR. And there's a guy who can fix a car. And, and certainly there's probably more than one in Baton Rouge. But you've got to find the right guy. Because you can't just go in there and start throwing parts at it. You'll just never get it. You'll, you'll never get to it. The light's going to keep coming on. And what confuses people, well, the light went off. Well, see, that light doesn't execute every test on every drive cycle. So if you do something and it doesn't execute that test on the next two drive cycles, light may go off. It doesn't mean the problem solved. It's just not testing for that right now. So then two, three days, a month down the road, wet light comes back on again. You never fix the problem to start with. You're just getting in the area. So... You're just going to have to get that to someone who knows how to test, who knows how to diagnose. It can't be that big of an issue because that's really not that complicated a car. There's really a fairly simple thing. You just have to have somebody who knows what they're doing to to find that, and that can be fixed relatively easily. Yeah, because I noticed like my horn about 3 o'clock in the morning, it came on to start blowing. I had to disconnect the cable from the car all the Yeah, Yeah, and see, that's sounds like a theft system problem mm-hmm. where it does it thinks the door is being open for whatever reason the theft system will do that it'll start blowing the horn so it indicates a bigger problem if you just take well, the horn you, you're just treating the symptom you're not treating the problem if you're disconnecting the battery you're actually clearing the memory for the pcm yeah so right. when you plug it back up it has to execute all the tests again right. it may, what it may be doing is when it gets to that test it's failing that test so the light comes back on right and so you don't right. ever want to disconnect the battery because when you do you destroy all the information that the guy needs to fix the car so you need to drive the car around with the light on probably at least a couple of weeks to make sure all the data is generated. Do not disconnect the battery. Then get someone who knows what to do it, and you'll be in and out of yeah. there probably in, in one day with the problem fixed. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, all right. appreciate that. All right, thanks, man. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. All right. All right, 291-6901 is the number. If you want to park the automotive, we would absolutely love to have you. We were talking <laughs> about frame damage and right. things like that, and we were talking about a few of the, the readings that you use for diagnosis mm-hmm. on that you can get when you actually hook a machine up to a car nowadays. There's the two that you mentioned, and there's also, like you said, setback. There's also toe on turns, which mm-hmm. means one of the wheels doesn't turn. The wheels do not turn. Well, the inside wheel has to turn sharper because it's moving around a smaller radius Correct. than the outside wheel because of the width of the car. And there's a certain specification for that. Right. Normally, it's 2 degrees at 20. When the inside wheel turns 20 degrees, the outside wheel will turn 18. But that's a rule of thumb, so uh-huh. it could vary from car to car. You'd have to look it up in service data. But if those don't do that, you're going to wear tires when you turn the car. Sure. And you'll notice sometimes in a parking lot, you make a turn, and you got two big rubber paths there. Right. <laughs> 
That's where, the where rubber scrubbing up. off the tires. That's right. Another thing that I have noticed some people do not do, and that is check the rear alignment when they check the front alignment. Because let's say it's got a straight rear axle housing. Mm-hmm. Well, they say, well, there's no adjustment, so there's no use to check it. Well, that's not true. Whether there's adjustment or not, you still have to know what it is. You have to know that it's correct, and you have to reference the front to the rear. Right, because the rear is tracking the vehicle, and the front is just steering to that. Well, just Friday, we had a 2014 Chevrolet truck come in with two completely bald rear, rear tires, tires, and it had been in a light collision, hit in the back. Well, the body shop straightened the body straightened out, the body right, out put a wheel, all that looked good, couldn't tell it had been damaged except that it eaten the rear tires up. Mm-hmm. And it's a three-quarter ton truck, so that's a pretty heavy-duty oh, rear yeah. housing. But it bent that housing severely. It was bent in, I think, about a degree on camera and maybe and, uh, almost I think half nine, inch. Nine-sixteenths on yeah, toe, yeah. A, a lot. It skint two tires completely to the card. In less than 10,000 miles. Yeah, relatively quickly. And the fix in this particular case was to go in, read the rear alignment, determine what was wrong. We had to replace the rear axle housing. Correct. And in some cases, we can actually straighten those rear axle housings, particularly like on a half-ton truck where it's fairly light duty. Mm-hmm. Three-quarter ton, not as much because of big, heavy, heavy housing. And this one was just bent probably beyond it was the bent severely. It bent it was, beyond the scope of what could be straight. Right. So that's another one of those things that if you don't check it, just because it's not adjustable, does not still, mean it does not need to be it checked. It still needs to be checked. At very least, if shops would get in the habit of checking these things, they could refer you, even though they don't maybe do that type of work, mm-hmm. they could refer you to someone who does. And well, we've checked your car and found this and this problem. It's out of our field. However, you could see such and such, and he can right. probably help you with this. Right. And most alignment shops have the wherewithal to change parts. you got a bent housing. They could change the housing out for you. Mm-hmm. But not knowing that the housing was bent in the first place is... Or how to detect that. Right, is the problem. Yeah. It's not changing the parts. Yeah, actually replacing the part is not that big of an issue. It's determining what part is bent, where it's bent, how it's bent, and those sorts of things. And then how it can be fixed. Well, is and, the, well big the rear deal. and housing is not too big of a deal because it's only one thing. But when you get into an independent front suspension where there's several possibilities, if exactly. you don't have the way to go in and measure and determine what part, you're going to be kind of like our last caller. You right, thousands a lot of parts. Of stuff. There you go. And I see we're just about totally out of time. We want to tell everybody how much we appreciate them listening this morning and every Saturday morning on Automotive Hour. I'd like to thank all our podcasters for listening this week and every week. And tell your friends and go to your favorite rebroadcast service and give us the written rating. Hey, appreciate your opinion based on our experience in the automotive industry. Have a great rest of your weekend.